once you really understand what are your options from a business model, economics perspective, what you can do, then you want to go deep and find tactics within those. But I get nervous when people start to do things, but they don't truly understand the economics of their business. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right, today I'm actually bringing you a podcast episode from when I was interviewed. I was on the Top Brand Builders podcast with Danny Green, who's a great guy. Definitely go check out his podcast. And we had a really fun conversation. I talk a little bit about my background, how I got into startups and into growth hit. And then we really get into the details on what we're doing with the startup studio, from how we're coming up with ideas to how we're validating it and and where we're at with the few of them. So I hope you enjoyed this episode um, on the Brand Builders Podcast with Danny Green and get something out of it. Danny, fired up to be here, man. Um, I love what you're doing with the pod. So we were kind of exchanging notes beforehand as two people doing a podcast, but very pumped up to be here. Yeah, I heard you on the uh, the Tropical MBA pod, and uh, I was just man, like so much of what you said really resonated, and uh, yeah, and I started following you on Twitter. I was like, man, I just I like I like you, I like what you have to say, I like your message, and I think what resonates most is that you have so many different pursuits and passions. It's like I I feel similar in the sense that in this day and age when everyone is telling you to niche down and focus, and it's like I I can't. I can't quite bring myself to do it. I've tried and it just doesn't work. So I'm, I'm happy to meet someone else that has kind of got their hands in a lot of different things. I'll say shiny object syndrome is very real, right? And I kind of, I do agree with the advice that you're saying we should follow that we don't, where it's about really focusing on one thing to do it really well, right? It's like, that's how you do wealth creation. And then for wealth preservation is when you should diversify. However, I I do think there's, there's way to still do multiple things. If you can factor in this idea of leveraging technology, people and resources in creative ways. So we can get into that, but yeah, um, it's a struggle, man. Um, trying to focus versus also wanting to like test a lot of different things. So, so happy to get into it. Well, before we dive into anything too specific, I'm curious just about the background and kind of where you come from. Um, if you could just paint the picture a little bit, have you always been the entrepreneur? Have you been, have you worked somewhere else? What was the, I guess the inflection point of, um, of you starting your company? Yeah, I was always a wannabe I was like a fake wannabe entrepreneur that like really wanted to do something, but just could never break out. Right. I, I mean, I feel like everybody had a lemonade stand, always did some half-baked entrepreneurial stuff growing up. I was like spraying sidewalks to put the address on it. I was horrible at spray painting. So that was really not good. I'd spray it in the, the paint would be dripping on the sidewalk. Like, oh crap, I need to give this person their $10 back for that. But um, I mean, I, I, I started my career in finance. I was in investment banking and it, this was when I was living in Dallas. I'm in Seattle right now. And um, it was really cool because 
we'd be a part of these transactions where you have this founder who's selling their company. And it was like small companies and small would be like selling their company for $30 million. But I'm in these boardrooms and I'm this analyst. I'm not talking in these meetings at all. I'm making a spreadsheet. I'm only talking because someone's like, wait, are these numbers wrong? And then I'm in trouble. But I'm in these boardrooms and they're about to sell their company. And what's so cool is in these boardrooms, you have MBAs, you have lawyers going through the due diligence. But the person I was always the most impressed with was this kind of scrappy founder. And this is Texas. So some of these guys didn't even have high school degrees, but they're the ones that built something. And I'm like, man, I want to be on that side of the table, right? And so... That kind of got the entrepreneurial bug going where I left finance and I, I got into startups. And what does that mean? It means I can't code, so I'm doing everything else. So I was like, I jumped on one where I was doing like copywriting and email newsletters. And that, that one started to take off and uh, they were based out of New York. So I got to move up to New York. They launched something called e-commerce. Like, we don't know what that is. Jim, can you figure that out? I'm like, sure. And so got lucky in that that one really kind of took off and then went to another startup that raised some some money. And then um, I got connected with some VC firms where like, oh, Jim's been a part of some cool growth stories um, with companies. Can you talk to these other founders? And the whole time I wanted to do my own thing, but just kind of snowballed to where I, like, oh, I'm actually consulting on the side. And then I was like, oh, maybe I should do this full time. And that led to an agency. And just now we've kind of spun up this startup studio where we can, you know, for such a good growth agency, why can't we grow our own stuff? And so that's kind of been the winding road to launching our, our little startup studio that we're doing. But yeah, man, but even when I was like inside at these startups, I was always not like jealous, but I was just like, man, I want to be the person that's guiding the strategy and that's the founder that's doing this. But I'm also glad I didn't do it. I wasn't ready. It was good to get those reps to be employee 20 at a startup that went to 150, be employee one at a startup that went to 50, just so you can like really see the growth and what is needed when you're going from like generalist to specialist or different phases. What were what did you notice while being part of those those big growth um, phases? Like, what what do you still use today, or what was the most impactful thing that you learned while being part of that? Um, yeah, in that season of your life. Yeah, I, I learned a lot, like a lot of little things on how to hire, um, you know, and just how important the right hire can be and how it can be transformative, right? Because at the end of the day, it's the team you build. And it sounds very cliche, but when we would bring in the right people, it was a huge unlock because when you're starting out at startups, it's like you get a lot of generalists, but then as you grow, then it's like, okay, we can graduate and get some specialists where like, you know, it's a e-commerce company where all of a sudden it's growing. It's like, hey, we can bring in a specialist that really understands CRO, conversion rate optimization. Um, and then same like with another startup where we kind of had a decent sales function, but once we could afford it, you bring in this VP of sales that has grown three companies to eight figures in under 18 months, and it's just a game changer. And so being okay with being honest that like, hey, I'm good at this, but I'm not great. Let me bring in someone that really knows this stuff and just be a sponge and even empower them. Because sometimes your ego could get in the way. We're like, wait, what about me? I want to own this thing. But man, if, if everybody's winning um, and, and you're just like down to add value, 
then um, then it can really have a, a big impact. When again, that's easier said when you're a business owner as opposed to when you're, you know, someone that's a part of a team that still wants to make sure you have a place and, and adds value. Um, and and so that that was always a big one. And just you know, I would take the role at some of these startups where we'd be in these meetings and they'd have a task that nobody would want to take on, but it's also a task that would allow you to have insight into working with the CEO or with the board. And so that's when I'd raise my hand. Like, for example, we were at a startup and it's like, hey, we don't know how to build a CRM. We don't know how to do Salesforce. Who wants to take this on? And the CEO is like, I really care about this. You'd have to work with me on weekends. And I'm like, actually, I mean, I'm going to be able to learn a lot there. So I took like that crappy role just so I could be a sponge and like learn what it's like to interact with the board and hiring people. And, and, and that was something that was a little counterintuitive, but what was really, I guess that's something that, um, I'd be interested in hearing about is as far as growth marketing, I hear a lot of about growth hacks and, you know, the turn, you know, it seems like there's always a new hack or a little loophole that people are trying to exploit. As a growth marketer, are there principles and is it sometimes just as simple as implementing foundational things like CRMs that is actually the growth marketing part or like what what provides the most value? Yeah, I, I mean, it's really like it's, everybody wants to get in like tactics and hacks and I do too. Don't get me wrong. I love like testing the latest stuff that could work in the short term but won't work in the long term. But it's really like understanding your foundation. It's like, okay, what are we working with here? What's your business model? Are you like selling some enterprise software thing where you're making 10 to 20 grand a year? If so, you're going to have insane margins and your options for marketing are awesome. But on the, the flip side, let's say you're selling some a beauty product that's 20 bucks. Um, your margins are, are decent, but you're not making a lot of cash on that first purchase and you're going to make more money in the long haul. You're maybe limited on some of the, the paid options you can do versus the free options. So first know your business model. Like, can you even afford to do marketing and at what scale? And then from there, you need to be very honest with what are your options? Are you going to, there's like four options for true growth. You can pay for growth through paid ads. We all know those. You can grow organically, right, through, you know, SEO and like content marketing. You can grow through virality or referrals, which is really fun. And there's ways to engineer virality, like referral programs. You know, Harry's grew on the back of their referral program. Sign up to the wait list, invite five people, get a free razor, right? Um, or you can grow forth through partner channels, having some unfair advantage with partners. And so once you really understand what are your options from a business model, economics perspective, what you can do, and then second, what are your options from channels, then you want to go deep and find tactics within those. But I get nervous when people start to do things, but they don't truly understand like the economics of their business, right? And so, you know, happy to get into that even more. Even this like D2C brand we're standing up, the price point of it is 30 bucks. I'm like, man, we've got to get our average order value to 60 or 90 bucks because then that unlocks so much more we can do on the paid ad side of things. But until then, we're really focused on growing organically and growing through virality. I guess I, I work with a lot of home service type companies and I would say they're between four, maybe one, one to 10 million range. Um, I guess D to C companies, there's actually probably a lot of similarities with 
home service-based companies. They're not. They're actually kind of similar price points too. I mean, a, a little bit more for a, a home service, but um, yeah, I guess if going forward, let's. That's kind of the mindset or the frame, I guess, of the the type, the size companies. I like to keep in mind. Okay, here, here's just kind of a general question with, uh, you know, trying to figure out testing and what works. And when it comes to protecting your brand, I guess this is a two-part question. One is, what's the most effective way to build a brand um, between the of those four that you just mentioned? And then do you ever feel concerned about testing too much? Everyone says test and iterate and pivot and all those buzzwords, but... Does testing erode your brand? Yeah, good question. You know, in in the I'll start with the second question first. Actually, like as far as testing eroding your brand, um, when you're starting out and no one knows who you are, it almost doesn't matter because you don't even have a brand, right? So you actually have that as an advantage where you could be more extreme with the way you test, the way you position, channels that you wanna do. You could pick a fight with an incumbent as you're trying to fight up uh, a weight class. And so, you know, that isn't as bad. It's where you get to be more well-known, where it's harder to take those bigger risks. It's like, oh, wow, do you see the brand did that or they did that partnership? It's like that could really kind of hurt it. And usually when you're launching a brand, it's like the Tesla model well, where, or the superhuman model where you want to start premium, almost be like very like – um, scarce and being able to get access to it, get premium, and then you can become more mainstream. It's hard to do the opposite. And so um, early on, testing shouldn't impact it. But um, as I look at the, the later phases, then, yeah, you need to be more sensitive to that because you, you've built a brand that could be somewhat fragile that you, you really don't want to mess with. Um, and when you talk about like best ways for building a brand, there is this awesome blog post that David Sachs did called starting a movement when building a brand. And it's really, I'm, I'm such a huge nerd and fan of frameworks. He basically gives this framework on if I'm launching a brand, how I want to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And things that I'm obsessed with is, you know, well, we can talk about the channels you can deploy it on, but it's more so like, what are you really pushing and what are what is the messaging there? Because what you see with big brands and movements is they're not pushing their product. They're pushing a cause bigger than them and they're or they're creating a category that they can own. And so when you can own something more than a product, but it's a movement or a whole new category or solving a problem a new way, then you can really start to create something that's special. The other thing is when building um, a, a brand, when you're just starting out, you need to almost have a villain and you want to choose a villain that's easy to go after, right? The status quo, something, if it's another brand has a really low net promoter score, right? You don't want to pick like, Oh, the villain is um, Nike. You know, Nike has a lot of love, you know, like the villains, all birds. It's like, you don't want to go after these loved brands. You want to go after mm -hmm. like the, the post, the U S postal service, you know, you want to go after things that people already don't like, or like the, the way you get your driver's license at the DMV or something like that. Um, that way everyone's like, yeah, that is horrible. That, that stinks. And so once you start to understand that messaging, the movement, the category, who you're villainizing, um, 
then you're on to something. And then how you put that out there is, is really interesting. And I like, this is really hard, but doing more of a bottoms up approach where it's really organic, where instead of going this paid route of blasting ads, could you find these niche communities that have those personas that are obsessed with the movement or the problem you're solving and really starting to create, create those evangelists and those early adopters that will help champion and be like vocal leaders of what you're doing. And then you can start to put a little, um, you know, gasoline on the fire with paid and, and other channels. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's kind of how I, I, I think about it. So when creating a category, I've heard people talk about that and I think it, yeah, makes sense. But how does a commoditized service create a category when you think of tree care, of plumbers, of pest control? Um, how would they create their own category? Yeah, um, really good question. So it's like, can we create a category in a nuanced way, but in a way that it really matters to a specific persona, right? So are, are there, so if you take it a step further, if it's, you know, tree care, but it's like, tree care for, and then just because I don't know, or we'll go pesticides, like pesticides, but for, you know, condo buildings only, or pesticides for, um, you know, people in Washington with indoor and outdoor spaces. Um, like trying to just go one step further to where your total addressable market, your TAM might be narrowed, but for that specific audience in their eyes, you are the one player. So creating a category could just be like niching down one more level, right? Is, is one way to think about it. And not in the tree care space, but one thing we're doing, we're, we're launching a, a, a direct consumer product in the men's grooming space, and we're trying to create our own category. And the product is called Handsome Chaos. It's, it's a pomade. But the way we're creating categories, we're saying, hey, this is a dry pomade where this is for dudes with long hair. That's our niche. And most pomades can leave your hair um, oily. This one is the opposite. It's actually dry shampoo and pomade form where if you're a day after not taking a shower, it won't leave it greasy. It actually dries it and, and gives it volume. And so it's a very nuanced. People can be like, oh, that's still a pomade. But we're going a step further to try and own our own category. Well, I'll be interested to hear a little bit more about that and how you came up with it. Did you take like the Tim Ferriss approach of posting Google ads and seeing what like clicked the best or how, how do you feel confident with launching this? Is it is it kind of a feel or do you have data that suggests that people are interested in dry pomades? Really good question. We We did essentially three things. Because I had this half-baked idea because I was stealing my wife's dry shampoo, which is like a powder sugar, essentially, you put in your hair. And I was like getting it all over my shoulders. I was like, there has to be something better for dudes. And so um, I was like, you know, let me see if there's appetite for this. So I did three things. First, I was like, all right, before I waste money trying to manufacture a product, let me see if there's any demand. So I ran a, a survey to 500 dudes and I asked them, like, essentially, is this a problem? You know, w would you be interested in a hair product that could leave your hair dry but still style it? Um, and so we saw that like over 80% were interested in it. The other thing was switching costs. It's like, would you be willing to switch from your product if we could deliver on this promise? And over 70% said yes. And then we said, if we got this for you, would be interested in buying, which kind of means nothing because, you know, they're not putting their money up. Um, and that was over 70%. 
So I, I'm not saying I had like product market fit, but we had signals. We're like, let's go to the next phase. So the next thing we did was like, okay, let's build a wait list to see if we could actually get people to sign up to see if they would buy this. So we did a wait list. We got a thousand people on it. And I'm can like, can I interrupt okay. you for a second? Yeah. Where did you go to test those 500? Because that seems very important to understand who those people are. Yeah. Um, I want to find the name of the exact tool. Oh, a Polefish is what I used. Um, it's a it's a software tool where you can curate the audience you go after to poll. And as you do, each filter goes more and more expensive in the people you get after because it's like twenty five cents a result. But then I'm like, oh, I want people with average income over X amount. It's like, oh, now it's going to be seventy five cents a result. I'm like, oh, and I want to make sure it's dudes of this age range. I think it costs me maybe like 700 bucks all in, but to get some pretty meaningful data. Gotcha, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, so I, I used Polefish for that, and then we stood up um, a simple landing page. We actually used Shopify to do it, and we ran Facebook ads to it, um, essentially talking about the promise of the product. We got a 1,000 people on it for essentially under a, a, a dollar per sign up. So I'm like, okay. That's interesting. So you can say I'm basically two grand in on this half-baked idea that does not exist. So maybe I'm just burning money, but that's what I'm doing. And now we're like, let's see if we could sell this thing. So we actually stood up a product detail page and we ran ads to it. And all of a sudden we, we have 20 sales um, at a cost that costs 50% of what we would sell it for of 30 bucks. We're like, okay, this is interesting. It's worth manufacturing the product. So now we're at prototype number 14, about to make our first order of a thousand SKUs to buy this product. And what I'm trying to do is I want to sell 500 of them um, at a cost where the unit economics makes sense. Um, I'm essentially going to be giving 500 away um, just for like marketing purposes and promotional purposes. But the goal is to make enough money to buy our next uh, round of orders. So are, um, as far as, you know, I guess go to market, do you, is influencer marketing, is that the best way or what, what's, what's going to be your strategy to get the word out? Yeah. So because like I have growth, which is my growth marketing agency, we've been a lot, uh, part of a lot of cool launches for D2C brands where it's working with them or mm. talking with partners. And so there's some cool examples that I've seen that I'm taking notes from and want to do. And one example is Bala Nursing Shoes. This is a direct super brand, ex-Nike people that have made shoes for nurses. They did 1.5 million in sales in six days on the back of their launch because they partnered with the right influencers. Um, you know, another one is Universal Standard. It's a women's size inclusive fashion brand. They got 10,000 new customers in one day on the back of a referral program where um, essentially you refer um, content out. They give a free product to you um, if you shared it with X amount of friends. Um, and then we've also seen some great success with ads. So we're taking essentially four paths where we're going to do a big influencer campaign with micro influencers. One, two, we're going to do a big referral initiative. Three, we're going to run ads because if we can't sell our own product with our own ads, we're not a good growth marketing agency. And then the fourth is mm. there's a framework for launching called Launch from Jeff Walker, where that wait list I talked about, we're really uh, looking to activate that. So that's kind of our, our four-tiered approach to, to try and pull this off.
You know, I, that's that's awesome. Um, one question that uh, is a pretty major piece of this whole thing is actually developing a solid product. So it was two it was two thousand dollars to um, test the idea. But then as far as like you had to in, literally invent a new product, which was kind of just glossed over, which seems like actually a pretty uh, monumental task. <laughs> was there and you said you're on uh, one of the many iterations of it. How So how was that whole process? Did you outsource or hire an agency to help you invent this or can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I went into, first, I have no clue how to manufacturing manufacture products where my, our skill set is in building websites and growth. It is very lacking in chemistry and fulfillment of manufacturing. So I went into a lot of communities. I'm like, um, how do you make a product? Found a bunch of options did a lot of emails and calls with them and I'd get some bids back. Like absolutely we can make your product. You know, we have a whole process. It's like a hundred grand. I'm like, I do not want to pay a hundred grand. And so we just get all of these options. It's just trial and error. And then finally got lucky and found a partner where they um, can do the chemistry, the formulation. They also do the fulfillment and the packing. And they had an R and D fee that was like three grand. And then they have really, um, obtainable um, minimum orders. And so, you know, the, the R&D fees around like three grand. Um, one thing I did not know with manufacturing or chemistry and formulation is how long it takes because you give them an idea, they have to get the ingredients. It's like three weeks for an iteration. You get it, you test it. You're making small nuanced changes. We've been doing this for eight months. And the crazy thing I'm hearing is people are like, oh, that's normal. You know, usually it's like a year. So um, someone that works in digital marketing where I'm used to like real time feedback, it's been quite painful to go through that. So, um, yeah, l learning that one the hard way. That's awesome. That's really interesting. That so it sounds like uh, finding the right manufacturer. That's that's the absolute key for sure. I guess can, if if we can step back a little bit from the D to C back to your agency, and um, this is more of a selfish a selfish question of my own, but um, getting traction in the beginning, I'm I'm finding this tension between going after larger clients that um, pay more, but it, they're harder to get. The sales cycle is longer, and then hiring better talent right off the bat, like you said, like specialists, or getting a lot more repetitions in, going after smaller um, companies, and then also hiring, you know, less developed talent that I might have to really train more. Is there, do you have any thoughts on either or and which you would do if you had to do it again? Oh my gosh, a lot of thoughts, because I've, I've done everything the hard way with our our agency and like when just starting out i was kind of on the riding on the back of this way wave of growth hacking and growth marketing which we i got accidentally lucky in that all of a sudden we're competing for deals with other very established agencies just because we're this new wave of oh i need a growth hacker or a head of growth and so that got us into some conversations that we probably shouldn't have even been in. But what it allowed us to do was to get some interesting reps where we're working with SaaS companies, software as a service, we're working with e-commerce companies, with Legion companies. So we're starting to get a feel for what we like, right? And I mean, I think you and I would both agree, you know, for me, 
if I could do it all over again, I would have started already knowing the niche or the specialty that I want to focus in. But we kind of started off trying a lot of things to see what we liked, where we could also see where we could go deeper. Um, and then to your other question around, you know, getting those big clients, but also having to have the more senior people to support you on it versus the ones that are easier to close. This is a constant battle we've had. And we've just kind of draw the line in the sand where we want to take on the, the, the bigger ones. And that's been a really tough one, but it's, it's so, it's such a must for the long-term sustainability of the company because they pay on time, the retention's usually better, and they're actually usually a little bit better clients to deal with, right? Because they're not like in crazy startup mode and like texting you every every five minutes. But um, but yeah, man, niching down, like I'm a little bit obsessed with some of the productized services that focus on a niche. Like Carl Hughes has draft dev which they do copywriting for software development platforms he only has the potential of 1500 clients but he owns his space so it's so hard when you're starting an agency to say no or any consultancy service business to say no to anything because you just want to survive but um niching down allows you to go up funnel it allows you to be more premium and you can bring in that talent to support but again easier said than done and it's tough to make that that jump yeah i've um so a lot of my work i do is video videography video work video marketing and um i so obviously yeah the niching down and i i had a company called green media i still do green media but then i was like okay testimonial videos have been the most successful so i created a brand underneath that called timeless testimonials but um i guess uh it hasn't taken off yet and i don't know if i'm just too impatient and i expected it just to go gangbusters and everyone to get it or like my testimonial videos were like in my mind they're like really high quality and um more story like where i think that testimonial video in people's minds are very like direct to the camera and less artsy and so maybe they don't think like it's worth like proving out the value but um yeah i guess i'm not sure what my question is other than uh i'm kind of pivoting now back to green media and trying to do um trying to like provide quarterly shoots to companies to get recurring revenue because yeah, the I guess recurring revenue. That, that's that's the main thing, right? Is is that the main thing for an agency? Is to have Dude, recurring 100%. revenue? Hundred percent. Recurring revenue is the holy grail. I am envious of two types of service businesses. One are accounting service businesses. Like my accounting partner, I've been with her for three years. Her average retention is like seven years, which is amazing, right? The other one is in the dev space. Once someone is in your code base and and runs your website. Mm you're going to be using them for a very long time. So we spend a lot of time thinking about how we Mm. can be sticky. And sometimes that can mean like you have a very premium offering you do, Mm. but eventually they might not need that. But how can you have some offer that's a third of what you charge? Like if our average retainer is 10 grand a month, what's something we could give them that's two to three grand where we could be with them for a very long time? Because I, I, I totally agree. The, the other thing that you're doing well is when you're niching down that you made a separate brand for it that speaks to that persona. I think that's really smart. 
Um, the other thing is you might be guilty of something that I'm guilty of, where first, um, if you're impatient, you're definitely like me. I'm very impatient. We just launched something called One Day Design, and I want to see that thing to seven figures yesterday. But um, I also wonder, like, <laughs> we just hired a head of biz dev or a head of sales, and that's another thing where I'm finally firing myself from that task. And to see a specialist come in and do that well has been a huge unlock. And how they look at doing cold email outreach and how they look at doing partnerships where I thought I was moving fast and I was operating at like a 10. But then I see the way they move because they can dedicate all their time to it. I'm like, oh, wow. Like I wasn't moving at that clip. I wasn't doing five partnership calls a week. I wasn't trying to send 20 cold emails a day. And whenever you can kind of have those honest conversations with yourself, if you had a guarantee results, what would you do? Because like, for example, your, your, your company around testimonials, dude, there's so many startups that, um, are niching down like that. that are doing so well. I know like testimonial heroes growing like crazy. That's a huge opportunity that, um, I, I, I think you should be sticking with that. And like, how could you go like all like full tilt on lead generation where you have a good problem of, could you even fulfill that? Um, cause that, that's stuff that we're, cause I don't know about you, but like, I, it almost be like a badge of honor as an agency where this is so dumb. I'm like, I don't do any marketing and look how well we're growing and look at the leads that come in. And I'm a, I'm a marketing guy and I wasn't doing anything. And just in the past, like, well, since COVID, we, we've really had to invest in that. And, and that's, that's been a big win for us. But, um, but yeah, that, that, that's no, man, I, I love what you're working on. Investing in, le- investing in Legion. Yeah. And, and just marketing, whether it's like we have an email newsletter and a podcast and just trying to put more, um, more attention on it. And I don't even think we're doing that good of a job. That That's one of our big priorities right now is to just be known in, in, in our space. Um, I'm curious about, uh, moving forward a little bit. You're, your mindset around in times like these where inflation is going crazy and um, you know a lot of things are kind of just up in the air now having an, an offensive mindset versus a defensive mindset and I mean you're launching a new company and or a new brand and it's like you're out there doing it making things happen um, do you ever get nervous or think that maybe yeah how would you what would you suggest about conserving cash or playing more defensive or more offensive how do you approach how do you yeah approach am that? i a paranoid business owner that wakes up at 3 a.m thinking about how much cash i have in the bank and a certain client that hasn't paid me in 90 days and all the shiny objects i want to invest in uh yeah absolutely that was today so um like i, I think about it a few different ways well and i don't know i was talking about my business partner as well there's like two mindsets you have the mindset of Warren Buffett where it's like rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one, like always be profitable, you know, slow is fast, slow grow. Um, and then the, the counter to that is Elon Musk after he exits PayPal, he has, I forget the numbers, but it's like, he has like a hundred million, $200 million. He invests a hundred million in SpaceX, 80 million in Tesla, 20 in solar city. And he has to sleep on somebody's couch, right? It's like just going for it. And it's like, man, 
what business owner do I want to be today, right? Do I want to have some cojones or or not? And so Mm. I I kind of go at it this way. I want to have a certain amount of cash in the bank. So I'm playing that Warren Buffett game where, because here's the thing, my worst case scenario is my company's got a business and I have to get a real job. Then I would just be devastated. So I'm like, all right, let me have, you know, X amount of dollars in the bank. And it could be like, four or five months of of runway, right? And then once I have that, then I'm down to like take off my Warren Buffett hat, Mm. I'll put on my Elon Musk hat, and let's go for it. But also, I want the bets that I make to be calculated Mm. and in growth. So for example, we made an investment in a VP of BizDev, which isn't cheap, and he's not going to be making us money for another three months, but it's very much worth it because the long-term gain should make it there. Same, we just made an investment in SEO uh, with a partner there where that's going to take some time. But we've also, like with one of our startups, as I'm, I'm a little worried about what's going on with the market, I can't force feed our existing products and prices to clients where they could be going through cash flow issues. So we stood up a, a website called One Day Design where we can do a web page design in 24 hours and we can do the dev for it. And we can do that in a very cost effective way. And the goal is we get a lot of leads that can come, that come in that can't afford our agency. How can we help them during this current state? So that's one thing. And we're also launching a new kind of, you know, mm-hmm. growth program um, that we're doing. And, and all of those bets take money and time, but there's, revenue that should be attached to those. But yeah, man, as uh, you and I, as business owners, like one of the, our most important jobs is capital allocation or, you know, allocation of the money that we make and allocation of our time that can have the biggest impact. And so those are things that I'm thinking through where like, you know, I'm playing defense by, you know, I want to be very conservative with my cash, but I'm playing offense where I am making bets. I want them to be calculated in, in things that could help us in the long run. What, what have you learned about hiring? And as far as like this VP of biz dev that you just hired, is that something off of like an Indeed or a LinkedIn jobs or um, what going through that process, what words of wisdom or what have you learned? Yeah, I, I think when you're hiring, you have like three options of candidates. You've got the been there, done that. The person that's done it before, who can hopefully do it for you again, it's proven, but they're going to be expensive, right? You have on the other side of the spectrum, the the junior person where they're, they're going to be cost effective, but man, it's a lot of investment in your time to invest in them. And then you have this middle option, which is this up and comer, where you're like catching somebody that's like got the training, got the background. They haven't totally proven it like been there, done that, but they're like this, like, you know, they're, they're Bitcoin at, at a thousand or 20 or 15,000 where you're catching them at the right time. So always think of those three categories and you can't always control what the market's going to give you out of those three. So I'm always open to the third, but it's funny because I was always told, you know, save margins, hire junior to go big. But I, I have found that the been there, done that for my business, I, I can think of four hires where those have been transformative for our business and for our revenue. Meaning my, my partner that came in after I was doing it for two years, our creative director, our VP of biz dev, and then our head of growth. And all of those are different phases of the up and comer and the been there, done that. Um, but as far as how to find them, man, it's so hard. Honestly, 
one of the things that accidentally was the best is I have this newsletter that I put out there. I'm a huge fan of building in public. So I share like our financials. I talk about what we're doing. We have this thing called a $3 million challenge where we're trying to, you know, launch three startups and get them to seven figures. And I'm failing in public a lot. You know, it's like I'm manufacturing a product. I'm on iteration 14. But what's been crazy just by making noise, people have heard about us and they've come to us and, it actually filters out the people that aren't the right culture fit. So that if they read your content, content, they know your personality. When they come to you, they're already pre-vetted. And um, that, that's been the, the biggest win for getting talent for our company is just, you know, being very transparent with what we do in building in public because we can't compete with VC-backed companies that are offering all these other things. We, we have to go about it our, our own unique way. That was something I wanted to touch on as, as we just have a couple of minutes here left. But um, as far as building in public, it uh, I'm always so impressed by the people who do it and just are like open book and just share everything. Um, what's been your, have you enjoyed the experience? Uh, I know you just mentioned that it's helped you maybe attract some culture fit talent, but um, have there been any, any downsides? Yeah, I mean, the, the downside is, you know, you're just kind of exposed and like, as much as we want to say we don't care what people think, it's like, oh, what do people think? People are like, oh, wow, he's doing that much. People are like, oh, he's only doing that much. And like, right. oh, wow, he said he's launching these right. things. It's like, they're not making any money yet. How's that going? So you have all these things that like could be going on in your mind. Um, and then the only other thing is like with anybody on my team, you know, like how they will think as, as we're, we're growing and, and like what the, the upside means for them. Um, I haven't had any issues with that yet. I don't know if we'd go full mm-hmm. transparent like what Buffer has done or ConvertKit, but I do like to be tra- transparent, especially for my team, just so they can feel that they're a part of it. But uh, so far, no huge downsides to it yet. But ask, ask me again in six months or six years if this was a good idea. Um, well, Jim, I appreciate you taking the time here and coming on and just uh, you know sharing some wisdom. Um, as we wrap up here, I just I usually like to just kind of open it up very broadly. And you've taken such a unique path and had a lot of life experience. I'm wondering, is there anything that you want to leave the audience with um, business, personal life? Just what, what would you like to leave the audience with? Yeah, you know, I, I think if, if, if they're like me, you've got a million half baked ideas, half of which should probably stay half baked. But like, it's, it's easy to think that you're working by like being in spreadsheets and like writing things down, but it's like, are you putting anything out there? Are you like taking any action? It's like, just start. Like if you're already an expert in it's it's actually too late. Like be okay with looking stupid, putting stuff out there and, and just kind of getting better. Cause I think a lot of times we think we have to be perfect, but that comes at the cost of, of speed and progress. Yeah. I love that message. Um, as far as plugs, anything specific that you want where people should go to find find out more, learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm pretty active there. Just Jim W. Huffman sharing what we're doing with our little $3 million challenge. We've got the agency Growth Hit, uh, growthhit.com. And then we just launched One Day Design, which is one day dot design to help design a page in, in 24 hours. But yeah, um, but I'm around and uh, happy to connect uh, on Twitter. Awesome. Well, Jim, I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for coming on and uh, look forward to following the journey.
Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. 